Hello and welcome to episode 8 of How Not, hosted by me, Luca Manning. And me, Kim McCarty. This is the brand new shiny podcast that we have created. And if you've been listening intently, you'll notice that I've just slightly messed up the intro. But that doesn't matter because it's live and in the moment, people. Anyway, our podcast is here to remind you to always be good troublemakers. Think big and ask how not. Kim, tell me about your life. Um, so I thought I was going to arrive with a cravat today. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I... Um, I had a really nice start to the day, took the dog on a really nice big walk, saw some good butterflies of different colours, came home, realised, couldn't necessarily remember where my wallet was. Oh, shit. Looked in all the normal places, to no avail. Then tried to figure out when was the last time I saw it. Two days ago, when I went to pick up some sushi in Golders Green, the place George Michael liked. Mm, George Michael sushi. So, I sort of faffed around for a bit. Of course, this is eating into... <clears throat> afternoon nap time, so I'm getting deeply crabbit even crabbit, to begin with. Crabbit Kim. Um, so then I drive to Golders Green, to the place where I think I've left it, and um, I arrive there, go into the shop. See, I'm just checking if, if someone handed in a wallet Tuesday night, half past six. I was like, I'm pretty pleased I can give you the exact time I would have left it. And he was like, oh, I wasn't here on Tuesday. And I was like, well, that's okay, but could you just check if someone else has handed it in? Yeah, okay, right. Then he goes goes to get the other another man. Meanwhile, this little lady bustles in because she needs her paper immediately. She's not, she can't wait for me to be dealt with, so she like wiggles in, and then she said, "Oh, hope you find your wallet." And I was like, "Oh, thanks, right? Oh, thank you." The other man came. He says, "What's what's what is it? What do you want?" And I was like, "I wonder if someone's handed in my wallet. Uh, I had it on. I left it on Tuesday." And she said, "Tuesday? How did you not figure out it was missing before then?" And I was like, "Excuse me, miss." You <laughs> watch yourself. What's your problem? Beef. Uh, just you pay for your fucking paper. Get back to your business. And then I'm confused. Why is this woman buying a newspaper in a sushi restaurant? Because <laughs> I good good question. Because I went into the Tesco next door while we were picking up sushi ah, that sells newspapers. That's okay. That was a vital detail. <laughs> I was like, what kind of establishment is this? Sushi and news. Um, yeah. So then her card was declined, and I was like, hey, how about get your can own life sorted before you start looking after me. Yeah, quite right. And the man said, what does it look like? And I was like, well, actually, it's really identifiable because it looks like a New York subway map folded in so it'll look like a subway map. And then he's looking around and then he, and he said, is this it? He just lifted up a small black wallet. <laughs> and I was like, what fucking subway system do you think that is like? One with all the lights off? One that's not been built yet? No! It was a New York subway system. It's not that one. Oh, we don't have it then. Right. Boom, thank you. Then I drove home and then I found it behind the fucking sofa. Oh, classic. <laughs> and then I was so like, at least I've times. got one. At least I've got it now. So now here we are. So it's fine. How was your week? Thank God for that. I've had many a wallet story that I won't even bore you with. It's very similar to that. So I feel your pain. Okay, thank you. Um, my week has been utterly fantastic and like has really been, despite the hangover of the Eurovision party I attended at, at the weekend, um, has been really full of the world opening up and joy. Mm-hmm. So I sang back in vocals for the delightful Rosie Freighter Taylor and we had a gig at the Jazz Cafe on Monday night, which was the first time I'd been in front of an audience in a long time, so that was beautiful. Mm. And then on Tuesday night, I went to the theatre, darling, mm. which was just incredible. What did you see? I saw a play called Cruise. Mm-hmm. 
that I just need to like it's written and performed by Jack someone okay honestly incredible I presume um, it's not about Tom Cruise no but the so other Cruise other type the of other cruise. type of cruise which we also referenced in the george michael we did. thing written and performed by jack holden right mm-hmm. and honestly it's on at the duchess theater and and i met i went to mildred's in soho for dinner lovely and with jamie saff and then he took me to this amazing old school italian gelateria that i'd never been to before where it's like dirt cheap and they do like vegan like sorbet stuff and they have like old italian music mu- movie posters all over the walls and it was delightful. And then we strutted down the Strand into Covent Garden to the Duchess Theatre. And this play was all about... Um, well, so that Jack Holden plays multiple characters, but um, the main story is about this it's 80s gay Soho in London and the AIDS crisis is hit and this guy and his partner get told they're HIV positive and it, you know he gets told you have four years. So four years to the day he's marked out and he loses his partner tragically and then he goes out on his last hurrah on his last night to all the places to say goodbye to all his friends to all the people that gave him a room when he first moved to london and 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 then you know he was working in the studio and the the music there was a musician on stage the whole time improvising with like loopers and keyboards and guitars and beats and it was like bronski beating pet shop boys-esque sounds and amazing. it was just everything you could have hoped for and it's an amazing story and it could had the potential to be so shit yeah, you yeah look sure. like west end like yeah. quite commercial kind of yeah. shit but honestly it was so well referenced and oh, researched there was so like elements good. of like polari in it and mm-hmm. just beautiful references of like london gay soho in the 80s and at the end everyone stood up oh and lovely. and, and I, jamie came out and i was just holding him he was crying and like I was crying and it just it was such an enriching experience. Life is fucking too short, and yeah. and we stand on the shoulders of giants, and we should be creating art like this to remember them, absolutely, and to remember these stories. And it was just a joy. Oh, that's so everyone that's should so go and see it. Brilliant. Okay, well, we'll we can like add a link there to make yeah, sure everyone goes time. right. Right. So the first episode we did, Luca, we talked about the proposed policing bill mm. that Pretty Patel had thrown into the ring. And we talked about the right to protest and why it was so important that that was maintained. And here we are at episode eight, which is a kind of, this issue is a sort of run on to that, isn't it? So yeah, um, we want we want to talk today about prison abolition, the idea of should we abolish or should we reform? Right. Um, and obviously, which is tied up in the, those criminal justice discussions that are actually, they're quite kind of active and prevalent at the moment because of that bill and also because people have been at home for a year and people have been kind of doing lots of reading and have got a little bit more engaged in things they might not have if they were super busy. Um, and our, like you said in the intro, Luca, our podcast um, is encourages people to be good troublemakers. And I don't think there's any better guests than to discuss being a good troublemaker <laughs> than today. What's an honour? <laughs> we'll get you a badge. Yeah, we'll get a crown. Uh, <laughs> and I was uh, I was reading the, uh, this uh, Arundhati Roy article uh, the other day about activism and she, she said that um, we must make ourselves visible even when we lose whatever it is that we lose, whether that be land, livelihood or a worldview. 
and we must make it impossible for those in power to pretend that they don't know the costs and consequences of what they do. And I think that for that is at the basis of protest, isn't it? It's mm. it is about it's about being visible and it's, it's about um, making people that make the decisions it making it impossible for them to plead ignorance to the consequences. Mm. Um, so we have two guests today. This is the first time that's happened. It's very exciting. It? I didn't even know we had this many mics available. One each. <laughs> Never gone back. Um, so uh, we have Matt Roberts, who is my trumpet friend from Leeds. Certainly am, yeah, it's a pleasure, Kim. <laughs> we studied together a long time ago. And then we have John, mm. uh, who is Matt's friend from the mm. Prisoner Solidarity Network. Um, so, I mean, we've already been talking a little bit off mic, haven't we? I know. And, we've and we've lost a lot of brilliant stuff. <laughs> we might have to uh, emulate those conversations. But maybe it'd be good, it'd be useful just to talk about how you both got involved in the Prisoner Solidarity Network. Matt, do you want to go first? Sure, yeah, I'll, I'll start. <clears throat> so I was involved in just general lefty activism um, for a few years um, from, I guess, my early 20s onwards, really. And, um, and uh, yeah, but I was checking out a podcast, actually, um, that was hosted by Navarra Media um, called The Lockdown Podcast, which I would definitely signpost any listeners of today's podcast towards if they're interested in further discussions on prison abolition and that podcast is hosted by my now uh, two very good friends Una Ryder and Sam Swan mm -hmm. and uh, there's actually a connection between um, a mutual friend of ours Kim because oh, really? uh, Aaron Kind dates Una Ryder oh really yeah, yeah, so look at that everyone's um, connected yeah yeah and uh, and yeah and Actually, yeah, like Tom Reeve told me that. And I was like, oh my goodness, I couldn't believe it. So I, I, I just slid into Una and Sam's DMs. Nice. And I was just like, I'm loving the podcast. And they were like, look, we're kind of taking on a, a branch of what was then called IWOC, which mm -hmm. stands for Incarcerated Workers Organising Committee. A lot of uh, lefty jargon for you there. <laughs> and that was a, a kind of a name that was inherited from... And that was an American organization. And then uh, a British person set up a London branch of that. And Una and Sam took that on. Um, I started to attend various meetings. And then at one point we decided we'd rebrand to something a bit more digestible and mm -hmm. something that, you know, says what we what it does in the tin, which mm -hmm. is, you know, Prisoner Solidarity Network. And I've been organizing with them ever since. Yeah. So that's my journey into this. And John. Mm. Tell me about your journey into this. Um, yeah, I was pretty much a product of the sort of childcare system, really. I entered the institutional system at about 11 years old mm -hmm. and graduated up via Borstal and reform schools into the maximum security prison system. Um, yeah, as a young man, I, I was involved in criminal activity, I suppose, and I was involved in street gangs and was convicted in 1981 of a fairly bad killing along with three other group members or gang members mm -hmm. um, and entered the prison system a very brutalised, violent young man. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, within a year of being in prison for life with a recommendation that I serve a minimum of 25 years, so I basically felt I had nothing to lose. Uh -huh. I was involved in a siege at Parkhurst Prison where we took an assistant governor hostage. Um, held him for three days, funny enough, with a Glaswegian prisoner as well. Um, and then after that, I was buried in solitary confinement for four years and also placed on what was called the ghost train, which was being moved around the prison system every 28 days. 
So I was buried in total isolation. But ironically, it changed me for the better. I began to study and read. Mm-hmm. I got involved in organising prisoners within the segregation unit. I became deeply radicalised and politicised. Mm. Um, and then when I finally left solitary confinement, I began to organise and mobilise prisoners in the so-called normal location. We formed unions, representative committees, etc., and I formed links with outside organisations as well, one of which ultimately was a prison solidarity network, which I linked up with Matt. And how did you do that? How do you reach to the outside world? Mm. It was very difficult at first because of the extreme censorship in prison. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it was very, very difficult. And some of the early battles we had was about the censorship of our mail in political literature. But we won quite a number of legal battles there. So I was able to open up quite good lines of communication with various radical prison support groups on the outside, um, one of which ultimately was a prison solidarity network. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I became very deeply politicised and radicalised and then left prison just last year after, well, 40 years really. Wow. And, um, and have now tried to become more involved outside than the outside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you mentioned the ghost train. So wh- what's the thinking behind moving people every 28 days? Well, officially, the reason given is because certain prisoners are such entrenched troublemakers that wherever they go, they're going to mobilise and cause trouble. Okay. But in fact, what it's designed to do is break prisoners psychologically and mentally by applying extreme stress. Uh-huh. So they have actually psychiatrists and psychologists work this out. It's called the Continuous Assessment Circuit. Mm. And what they do, they work out that when you're moved to a prison, it normally takes between 7 and 14 days for you to adapt to your environment. And then once you're adapted, they move you again. And this goes on every 28 days. And as I say, I spent four years on the ghost train, but some, for example, Irish Republican prisoners spent anything up to 10 years on it. And many people are broken by the experience. Sure. It, It really is a really stressful... Because you're never told where you're going one morning, they'll unlock your door very early and say, right, you're on the move. And there are certain prisons back then, such as Leeds, Winds and Green and Wandsworth, that were run by the Prison Officers Association, where they were literally murdering prisoners. And as soon as you arrived at that prison, you were placed straight into the segregation unit, which is where most of the brutality took place. Um... And these prisons had awful reputations and you didn't know where you were going until you were on the motorway and if you saw a sign saying Leeds, you thought, oh, my God, you know, I want to get off this this bus. For example, I went to Winds and Green. As soon as I got off the coach, went into a reception, I was attacked by 10 prison officers who fractured my jaw, broke my ribs and then threw me in what was called the strong box, which is a cell within a cell. And had it not been for the involvement of a prison doctor, she actually saved my life. And she actually came to court in my defence or to strengthen my case when I took a civil action against the prison service. As a result of which, her car was firebombed by prison officers in the car park and she was assaulted and driven out of the prison system. Jesus. That's how bad it was back then. I mean, they were in Worm and Scrubs, for example, what they were doing. And this all came out during a public inquiry into what was going on in the Scrubs. They were literally going into cells, beating prisoners unconscious and hanging them. From the windows and the prison doctor which usually was in you know the pay of the prison service would say this person had committed suicide yeah. they were literally mm. murdering prisoners yeah and then it all came out of the public inquiry what was going on four prison officers were convicted of minor assault and sure. were only given 18 months in prison 
But the, the, the decision or the, the, the finding of the, of the inquiry was that had it not been for the collaboration of, for example, prison doctors, prison chaplains, prison probation officers, who colluded and were complicit in what was going on, this would never have happened because the prison officers knew that they had the backing of these people, sure. which gave them the confidence to go and murder prisoners. Yeah. yeah, And that was quite systemic during the 70s and the 80s. Sure. In places like Winds and Green and Wandsworth and Leeds. And connects very clearly, <clears throat> I think, to even the, you know, the, I mean, the trial of the, the police officers accused of murdering George Floyd. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, yeah, where, absolutely. where we... This, I mean, yeah, just to step back for a second, Luke, I'm sure you've got like eight million questions because uh-huh. I have them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just to step back for a minute, one of the things that I, when I was reading The Prisoner Solidarity Network has this really useful info pack, doesn't it, that mm. kind of gives you a, a kind of rundown of things. And it talks about the principles. And the first principle yeah. is that harm and crime are two different things. Yeah. And although that doesn't sound like a radical idea, it really does fly in the face of what we're taught from a really young age. And if if you've never had a direct involvement or perhaps an involvement through a, a kind of second-hand involvement through a friend or family member in the criminal justice system or the prison system, you are quite protected by this idea that crime and harm are the same thing, mm-hmm. that there's an authority you can trust. Because, of course, it's very, it, you feel very safe when you feel like there's someone else making the decisions for you that is best. Yeah, we'll, we'll defer to the authority to make the decision. Mm-hmm. And we're told that that'll keep us, us safe. And so for a lot of people, the only involvement they have when we think about crime, criminal justice and prisons is us being told that that's that's a good idea yeah, I mean, and well, we just need more. it's a position of privilege, isn't yeah. it? Because mm. if you're someone that can say that, you know, the police keep us safe and that mm. you believe in the criminal justice system, then ultimately you're coming from mm. a, a place of privilege. Right. Because you mm. Or, mm. you know, you've you've done, you've wisened up and mm. you're mm. involved in the Prison of Solidarity mm. Network or mm. sitting here today. But ultimately it's, it's yeah, it's, if you're able to believe that lies because it doesn't mm. affect you, you know, and... In, in real terms. Yeah, but it does feel like in the last year or so, we're starting very slowly, sort of frustratingly slowly, but starting to question authority in a way mm. that... Yeah, in the mm, system, yeah. Or in, like, in a mainstream way that hasn't mm. sort of happened before. So mm. maybe... I don't know the first thing to delve into. I feel like we're going to like... Well, I think it's, one thing that really clocked on to me, John, was as you were... Um, talking about your journey just then mm. I'm and talking about this these kind of awful brutal mm. things that you and other prisoners mm. had experienced mm. I find it incredibly inspiring that while suffering in solitary confinement you found an opportunity to become radicalized mm. and to, and to yeah. read mm. and I just wonder I don't know if you yourself know where that would have come from or were, were you ever involved or engaged in these kind of things before as a young person like were you engaged in <clears throat> politics and activism or, or reading that kind of thing or, or where did that come from within you um yeah well uh, my mother was was irish mm-hmm. and um uh we came to england when i was about four years old and we lived in a part of London that was pretty much like Alabama in, in the early 20s 
in a place called the Old Kent Road, and it was a wholly white English working class district, the only really ethnic minority in the area were the Irish, mm-hmm. who were subject to extreme victimisation and racism. And my mum was quite a legendary figure. She stood up to them and fought back. And the police would occasionally be called and they would inevitably side with the racists. That was the seed of my alienation from the system Mm -hmm. and the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. I saw myself very much as an outsider and marginalised and the police as the enemy. So that sort of planted a basic seed of radicalisation, although unfortunately my rebellion back then was pretty blind and misdirected and Mm. took the form of street crime and gangs and all the rest of it. So... Yeah, I was, when I came to prison and became radicalised, the seed was already there because of my experience of anti-Irish racism. Sure. And my my father was a, was a, an ex-miner from South Wales. He was, a, mm. he was actually a communist. So I had that right. elemental condition of an Irish Republican and a Welsh communist. Yeah. Yeah. So that sort of planted the seed. And I think the thing about prison, ironically, was that I discovered my humanity in prison. Um by recognising the humanity of my fellow prisoners, particularly when they were under attack and being brutalised, I discovered my own humanity. Mm. Yeah. And that was the irony of the prison system. Those enforcing discipline were completely dehumanised. Yeah. They were more damaged than prisoners. They really were. Of course. Which is yeah. why prison officers have the highest rate of, for example, divorce uh-huh. and alcoholism. They're very damaged Back by, by from them. emotion. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, sure. Whereas prisoners find almost their humanity, their common humanity. They're yes. humanised by the experience yeah. of oppression. It's like what we were talking about mm. in our Right to Protest episode, like there's mm. no no feeling like that solidarity. Mm. Being seen and making mm. yourself visible alongside mm. other people, taking up space. Oh, absolutely. Is, is, yeah. There's something very um, yeah. innate in us well, that needs It's that, like the first know. protest I was ever involved in. I'd been sentenced about you and I was in Wormer Scrubs. And the screws of the prison officers had gone into a wing one day and, and brutalised prisoners who were on demonstration and protest. And the following day, we were all on the yard. There was about 100 of us, and someone said, look, we should protest about what happened on D-Wing. Mm-hmm. Let's refuse to go in. And it was quite a nervy experience because we knew how the screws would, would mm-hmm. respond. But you know what? I experienced a sense of human solidarity. And... You know, prior to this demonstration, we were very much divided by ethnic allegiances, gang allegiances, yeah. and we were always fighting among each other. Suddenly we realised that in order to survive, we had to depend on each other. Mm. And there was almost a brotherhood formed. And I'd never experienced that before. This great humanity yeah. and courage that, that that bred into us. And I'd never experienced that sense of common humanity and brotherhood. Yeah. Um, and we won the demonstration, we absolutely won mm. because we managed to shift the balance of power. And one of the lessons that really taught me was, even in a situation like prison, you know, based on this incredible unequal balance of power, you can shift that balance of power through solidarity. Uh-huh. And by shifting that balance of power, you can fundamentally change the system. Yeah. And we certainly experienced that in the long-term prison system during the 70s and the 80s in England. Mm-hmm. And it still exists to a degree in the Scottish prisons uh-huh. where that balance of power has been shifted to the advantage of prisoners because of solidarity and common purpose. Do you yeah. think it's fair to say that the only thing that ever separates that is is being made to feel that you have no part? You know, if you keep people feeling like they are powerless, then they don't realise that the, the potential is that mm. in numbers and in mass oh, movements, absolutely. they have it yeah, all along. Yeah, of course. You know, it's, absolutely. In, it's, 
there for the taking, but that's yeah, the thing, isn't it? When you're so blinded, you oh, can't yeah, see it. You know? And that was our problem. We, we, you know, we came from gang cultures and all the rest of it. And we had this very negative view about empowerment. We saw it, you know, basically as gang empowerment or individual empowerment yeah. that was determined by the degree of violence that you could inflict on other prisoners. Uh -huh. You know, you had this gang system where the most powerful gangs in a wing, which are usually cultivated by the prison officers, were those who were prepared to use the greatest violence and even kill other prisoners. Sure. It's a very negative form of empowerment, but experiencing solidarity and common purpose and organisation generated this incredible feeling of real collective positive empowerment. Yeah. That, you know, you believed you could actually change the world. Mm -hmm. You certainly could within the prison system. And that had an incredibly ennobling effect on us as prisoners. It really did. Well, something that we've talked about so often is just people are so much more powerful than, than they believe that they are. Yeah. Absolutely. And that actually this the idea of kind of keeping people tired and hopeless is, of course, the best mm. way to kind of mm. control people. But mm. it, it, it's why um, the best, you know, we've seen that in the way that kind of protest has been, well, if you look mm. at this police bill mm. to try and sort of, you know, oh, criminalise protest, yeah, um, the best way to kind of, is to is to make the, the the sort of common idea of a protester to be so far removed from the someone watching the news that right. they can't yeah. identify with yeah. them. So they just they can they can dehumanize them. They can just make yeah. them these troublemaker. Absolutely. As soon as you realize that there's more that connects us than divides yeah, us, absolutely. that's so powerful. And of absolutely. course, in a system like a prison where of course the prisoners outnumber the guards, you have to have some strategy for keeping control, don't you? Absolutely. Um, because otherwise, you know, that yeah. it's, it doesn't work. I mean, work prisons like, like societies run on the cooperation of prisoners. Mm -hmm. yeah. If prisoners withdraw their cooperation, that system effectively collapses. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, I, and I witnessed that on a number of occasions when not through violent riots but us refusing to work or participate in the regime, the system effectively collapsed. We yeah. withdrew our cooperation. We are many, they are few. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that, that incredible sense of empowerment, collective empowerment, realising that we could change the system providing we stuck together, providing we had a common purpose. And it didn't matter how much violence the prison system was able to use against us. We were in the majority. Mm -hmm. We dictate our prisons were going to be run or not run. And, you know, that's an incredibly inspiring experience. I mean, I'm talking to Matt about a situation back in the 70s and 80s. There was a, a segregation unit at Wakefield Maximum Security Prison, F-Wing, that was originally a control unit. It was an experiment in behaviour modification, mm -hmm. run by psychiatrists, by the way. And it was an incredibly brutal place and prisoners were committing suicide and self-harming. And I went there shortly after taking that governor hostage and was buried in a subterranean cage mm. next door to a prisoner called Robert Maudsley who, believe it or not, spent 50 years in the underground oh, cage denied in natural light. Fortunately, when I went there, the prison system got so confident that they'd accumulated what they considered the most difficult and troublesome prisoners in this one unit. Big tactical mistake. And I managed to open up lines of communication despite being in this subterranean. And there was a lot of Irish Republican prisoners there. And we came together and we turned it into a H-block. We covered the place in human excrement. We threw buckets of urine over the screws. And they eventually brought the riot squad in. We fought back quite quite fiercely. A lot of us were knocked unconscious. But they had to close their wing for a month. It was the first time it ever happened. Mm. They didn't take any of us back, unfortunately, apart from Bob Mortley, who, by the way, is still there. He's now oh, 75. And he's still buried in an underground cage. Incredible. But, yeah, I mean, that... 
that was the most repressive place in the British prison system, and yet we overthrew it by yeah. coming together. Mm. Yeah. And that was an incredibly radicalising experience for it's me. It gave amazing. me great faith in human solidarity. So you, um, <clears throat> so when you, so you came out of that period of solitary confinement, and and obviously decided that you want you wanted to to kind of organise and to mm. do that. Mm. That. Did that mean that you stayed in prison longer than you would have oh, if you'd... Oh, absolutely. I'd have been released 20 years ago. Right. I was deliberately... I mean, it's, I had a number of parole hearings, about five or six, I suppose, and they were sort of bringing these prison-hired psychologists to say that I suffered with a antisocial psychopathic personality disorder because I was anti-authority. Yep. Apparently, if you're anti-authority, you suffer with an antisocial personality disorder, apparently. <laughs> So that's why I was kept in prison. I mean, for years, even some prison psychologists said I was no risk to the community at all. Yeah. I was kept in prison because of my behaviour in challenging authority and because I became a sort of prison writer and distributed a lot of articles and exposed a lot of the brutality that was going on. I eventually had to go to the High Court on a judicial review to get out of prison. You'd think they would have wanted you out of there to try and like, yeah, calm things down. Well, yeah. eventually they did. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, I reached a position that was quite funny during the late 90s where no prison would accept me. And I was in I think, Bristol prison, I think. I was in a shed unit and they said, literally, there is no prison that wants you. I said, well, let me go. Yeah, well, I'll just have to go home then. <laughs> and, and that's when they sent me back to the Scottish prison system. Was that a... Did, do you, did you make a decision? Did you weigh that up, did you think? If I if I do this, if I organise, if I try and kind of fight this system, I'm going to be in here longer. I was prepared to die. You are prepared to die? No, I made that decision to myself that I was not going to compromise my basic integrity. Uh-huh. You know, if I witnessed brutality, I was going to organise against it. And if it meant... I mean, you know, I would have them saying to me, screws or prison officers and psychologists, just play the game, yeah. tell us what we want to hear, and you can go. Yeah. And, you know, I said, so what then is the point of prison? Is it to rehabilitate or is it just to turn us into unquestioning conformists, despite the fact that we may in fact be a risk to the community? You're prepared to release us, providing we lick your bum. And in fact, it was uh, Cambridge University during the late 80s did an experiment or research into the relationship between prison behaviour and subsequent risk to the community and they found an inverse relationship in as much as those prisoners who were absolute conformist and very manipulative reoffended very quickly after yeah. release. Yeah. Whereas those prisoners who retained some degree of human integrity and questioned authority were the ones least likely to reoffend. Mm. But that didn't matter to the prison system because what prison is about is not about protecting the public, it's about breaking the working class or the rebellious working class. And if you're doing a life sentence, you will only be released when you conform unquestionably, regardless mm. what your risk to the community might be. Mm. Whereas if you speak out, as I did, and organise against human rights abuses, you could probably die in prison. Mm. And I would have died there had we not taken a judicial review. And um, the High Court basically said to the parole board, look, unless you can come up with a public protection reason, you're going to have to release him. And they were forced to release me in the end. They didn't want to release me. And how so? How common is that that some that a prisoner is is put in prison for a, for a kind of single act, and then as a result of things that happen inside, it's their sentence is yeah. just extended? Is that quite commonplace? Oh, very common. Most lifers in the prison system, 
They're given what's called initially a tariff, like I was given. You must spend a minimum of 25 years if you're given a life sentence. Most life sentence prisoners well extend that tariff. I mean, I, 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 I was given a 25 year, I spent 40 years in prison. Mm. Under IPP, Indefinite Detention Public Protection, there are some prisoners, a friend of mine, who got a six month tariff for threatening his brother-in-law and brutalising his sister. He's now been in prison 15 years for threatening behaviour, oh, yeah. okay? Because basically he questions and challenges abuses of power in prison. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Once you're given it, and this is a whole thing, and a lot of European countries don't have the life sentence. Yeah. And the reason for that is the problem is that once you're given a life sentence, the decision about whether to release you or not, it doesn't lay with the judiciary, it lays with the state. Okay. Okay. And as I say, the determining criteria in terms of release of life life sentence prisoners is not whether you represent a continuing danger to the public, but what your attitude is towards prison authority. And if you question prison authority, you're going to stay in prison. So you have this massive abuse of power. Mm -hmm. And particularly IPP prisoners who are doing what's called discretionary life sentence. They haven't killed anybody. Mm -hmm. Some of them haven't even been violent. But they will die in prison unless they conform to prison authority. Mm-hmm. It's a great abuse and injustice. Yeah. Mm. Would it be just, yeah, I mean, there's something I've been thinking about a lot is like we know that the policing system in our communities mm. has kind of disproportionate effects on people that are working class, possibly people from yeah. like ethnic minorities, ethnic minorities, people from yeah. any, any mm. minority community really. Mm. And to me it seems more and more apparent that folk will go into the prison system with a, a crime that is is non-violent or mm. or you know something that we mm. wouldn't imagine as being a huge risk to, mm. to public safety and yet become like more and more involved in crime as they mm. move into the prison system you know well, just when you mention well, are we rehabilitating it's like it's just Things get worse and worse it, as people go into prison. You're absolutely right? right. I mean, I was what was called the American calls a state-raised convict. Mm. All right, I entered the institutional system as a child, really, children's homes, and then graduated onto reform schools and borstals. My early offending behaviour, so-called, was petty theft. Right. But one of the things I learned in approved schools and borstal was how to be violent. Because they're very violent institutions and the prison officers encourage that because they create a hierarchy among the prisoners. Mm. Mm-hmm. And those at the pinnacle of the hierarchy, are basically the control purpose of the institution is subcontracted out to them. So the gangs basically keep the other prisoners in place. And your position in the hierarchy is determined by your ability and capacity to use violence. Yeah, And that's encouraged by the system. And, and I sort of changed from a relatively petty offender into a fairly violent man mm. but that I was created and moulded in that within the institutional system yeah. and most of your long term prisoners at least 70% began their institutional career if you like within children's homes and reform schools and were shaped into violent offenders so if the prison system is anything it's actually a risk to the public yeah, right? do you understand because yeah, it's yeah. manufacturing creating very brutalised, almost dehumanised young men who were then released back into society. So in terms of public protection, prisoners are inimical to that, or prisons are inimical to that. Mm -hmm. If you really want to protect the public, you've got to abolish prisons. Sure. Because they're manufacturing extremely violent offenders. Well, that sort of brings us on. So so Mm. there's been lots lots of discussion, there is lots of discussion about what to do about the prison system and Mm. their... 
there are some that want to just create more prisons and put more people in prison. And then those who identify that there is a problem, I guess there are some that want to reform the system and those that want to abolish it. Maybe, Matt, do you want to talk a bit yeah. about, about reform versus abolition? Oh, my goodness. <clears throat> well, I think what a lot of people ask, they ask the question, you know, what's the al- what's the alternative to prison? Do you yeah. know what I mean? And uh, I mean, the short answer to that is the alternative is we don't lock human beings in cages. Yeah. put quite bluntly but i think what people mean when they ask that question is how do we address harm mm-hmm. in a society without prison and as john just mentioned prisons don't Perpetual. address harm no. they actually perpetuate mm-hmm. it um sure. and i think yeah the, the this difference between kind of reform versus abolition i guess you could say oh look you know prisons are these dehumanizing situations and then a reformist might say okay what we need to do we need to put uh, more funds into prison so we have better staffed uh, wings and this that and the other and abolitionists would say no we need to lower the prison population we need to like release these people from prison and we need to stop you know criminalizing things such as well i mean ultimately again we need to separate this idea you mentioned crime versus harm right you know i mean people are criminalized for being homeless people are criminalized for stealing a loaf of bread and some sanitary products from a local supermarket you know people are criminalized for not paying their tv license meanwhile you've got uh bosses ceos you know working their workforce (laughs) in some cases literally literally (laughs) to to death death. Mm. um Mm. you know destroying however much in tax of course destroying the environment destroying Mm. entire ecosystems Mm. causing a level of harm Mm. that's actually beyond our comprehension Mm. because of the scale of it and you know these people act with total impunity because they're they're not criminalizing in fact under capitalism they're actually celebrating yeah they're they're lauded as as wealth creators they're given knighthoods they're given peerages um they're invited onto newsnight to tell whatever politicians true psychopaths yeah yeah of course absolutely absolutely right so uh you know no that the the yeah the 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 abolitionist argument is that no we we need to lock up less and less people ultimately no one and build a society where mm. we do actually address harm unlike the con- the the current society where we really don't and actually perpetuate it with yeah. with, with the existence of prisons i don't know if john has stuff to add to that i'm, I'm sure you've got no you, you're absolutely right someone did quite an interesting bit of research on psychopaths mm-hmm. and where are most of the psychopaths concentrated well they're certainly not concentrated in maximum security no, prisons they concentrate in places like the city of london yeah. mm. but as you say they don't end up i mean you know i spent 40 years in prison I never ever met one capitalist in the prison system. They're all poor, largely ethnic minority people. Mm. The real psychopaths are concentrated in the city of London or the House of Lords. But of course, you know, they work for the system, so, you know, they're rewarded. But, you know, people often say to me, you know, because I was in places like Parkhurst in there, late 70s and the early 80s, and it's quite some notorious prisoners there, like the Crows and the Richardsons, etc. And people often say to me, you must have met some real psychopathic individuals. And I have to say with great honesty, I never met any prisoner that I would consider a psychopath. The true psychopaths I met were all wearing uniforms and carrying keys. Yeah. Mm. Their behaviour was truly psychopathic. But you see how, how, how deeply within us that story of like good and bad, that yeah. binary of good mm. and bad the is. Good mm. and bad, yeah. It's, it's just yeah. like... It's fairy tale. Uh, it is, yeah. Absolute fairy tale. Yeah. Absolute fairy tale. Yeah. 
But there obviously is a political or social reason for that, and it's, you know, folk devils. You yeah, know, sure. It, it serves a, a, a very good purpose, and it's about social control and social yeah. brainwashing. So we have this minority of marginalised individuals that, you know, the rage and anger of society or the, the common people is focused on that marginalised group de- mm. deliberately. You know, folk devils, basically. Yeah. When in fact the true criminals... The very true criminals are the responsible for genocide in colonial oh, times. Absolutely. Where are they? They're yeah. in Parker's prison, are they? Yeah. And it's scary that what you were saying about, you know, the psychopathic nature mm. of prison guards and stuff. Mm. I remember at school mm. that we watched the Stanford Prison Experiment. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah it's, very it's good. It's so yeah. well illustrated. Oh, like absolutely. How if, if, if mm. one, at one point everyone's coming from the same... Yeah wavelength and then mm. you give certain amount of people yeah. a bigger proportion of that power mm. and the situation can just well i mean you know look at the concentration camp guards mm. yep. in the nazi time you know it was said that you know there was research done about it now these were guards who lived in a local community and were considered quite normal people yes very good residents good fathers but as soon as they entered the concentration camp, this radical change of character and personality yeah. took place. I remember once I was, I was coming back from court and I was going into Wandsworth Prison, which back then was called a hate factory because of the degree of staff brutality. And I remember I was in the van and it was during the turnover of staff at five or six o'clock. And, and I, I watched these staff go in and they were very sort of furtive as they went through the gate. And as soon as they walked through the gate, this huge metamorphosis overtook them. The swagger started uh-huh. because it's a mini totalitarian society, sure. and these people believe they had a you know total degree of power over prisoners, and it, it was that relationship of power that dehumanised the guards, not us, dehumanised them, and yeah, I mean they they were absolute psychopaths. Well, it's the only way that they can get those people to go into their work in the morning because otherwise you wouldn't go, would you? No, you wouldn't. You you couldn't bear it. It's the only, yeah, Yeah. the only way it works. Well, this is what I mean about dehumanisation of prisoners. You wonder how, because I've watched them behave in prison, how do they reconcile that with their conscience? Mm. And the reason, the way they reconcile it, very much like the concentrate cards during the war, they dehumanise prisoners. Uh So we're not really human. Mm. No. Do you understand? Yeah. They don't really feel that, crisis of conscience yeah. when brutalising us because we're not really Yeah, they wouldn't human. behave to their neighbour I would honestly dare like to that. say that that extends to the public as well. It does, definitely. Like, Absolutely. Like, how many people actually talk about this? Like, you know, like, and how, how often do I have an opportunity to sit with someone mm. like you and mm. actually mm. see you and hear mm. you and, like, it's just so hidden like it's mm. so like the whole narrative is just not mm. treated as no. these are real people in real life absolutely absolutely so, yeah, that's, and, yeah and it you know it is very reminiscent of, of the treatment of people like jews during the second world war right and the, the treatment in concentration camps they're totally dehumanized yeah by the system and not really considered true human beings and it's the same with the very marginalized in the prison system yeah you know, we're not really considered really human. We're monsters. Absolutely. And therefore, it doesn't really matter if we're dehumanised and brutalised because we don't we don't deserve human rights because no. we're not really human. And I think that, but it also, it, it helps everyone feel safer to mm. think that... Mm, absolutely. It's a very frightening thing to realise mm. that all of us are capable mm. of mm. everything. Oh, absolutely. Because if... Be- because if we create a story where people are born bad mm. 
Um, that mm. thank you know you th- thank God answer. I'm not one of them. Right. Yeah. So, we, yeah. Yeah. so yeah. then we don't have to think about oh, all of our responsibility mm. collectively to, uh, to how the these things have happened. Mm. I mean, that's the thing yeah. about the human character and personality of this sort of wide spectrum. So. You know, you're Adolf Hitler and St. Francis of Assisi, the opposite polar ends. We are all capable of doing right. great, yeah. terrible badness, but also goodness. Yeah. Great good, yeah. And, and the irony about prison was that the people who supposedly were defending and protecting the public were evil, behaved in an evil way. Whereas those who had been sort of dehumanised and marginalised, i.e. prisoners, showed incredible humanity. You know, I met prisoners who basically sacrificed their lives mm-hmm. for other prisoners. Mm. Sure. And, you know, it's a c- complete at about turn of how society perceives the actors in these institutions. Um, yeah, I mean, as I say, I discovered my humanity in prison through common struggle with other prisoners. Mm. Um, Something you mentioned just before we started recording mm. was the difference that you'd noticed between Scottish and English yeah. prisons. Do you, do you want to talk a bit about that? Because you... You've done quite the tour of, of, of different prisons. So what, what did you notice was with the sort of differences there? It's a massive cultural difference between the Scottish prisoners and the English prisoners. I mean, unfortunately, over the last, I'd say, 15 or 20 years, there's been this radical shift in culture in English prisons, particularly among long-term prisons. As I say, when I, when I first went to prison, people like myself were from largely... Dynamic working class communities. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had with us basic instincts of solidarity, common purpose, and challenging authority. Because yeah. we were from communities that were like that. I grew up in a Dockers community. Then what happened over the last, I suppose, 10, 15 years, you had this, um, well, society fundamentally had changed, obviously. Mm. But you had this, mass, this sort of Americanization of prisoner culture, the gang culture developed, mm-hmm. which the prison officers loved. Divide yep. and conquer. Whereas in Scotland, particularly Glasgow, which has you know this, this long tradition of gang warfare, yeah. as you know, but within the prison system itself, those divisions were buried, and prisoners came together in Scotland against a common enemy. Mm. And there's a cultural reason for that, I think. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to be racist against the Anglo-Saxons or the English, sure. but there is that fundamental difference in character. Yeah, and it's probably about. I don't know, Glasgow or Scotland's class heritage. Yeah, I mean, sure, we spoke about yeah. it. We did an episode on yeah. being Scottish and we, yeah. you know, we said it, in a way it's quite easy to be Scottish mm. and to be proud of it mm. more so than my friends who are English because we're the underdogs and we're the ones Absolutely. that have shit done to us and you can, you can have that fight in that, a bit that connection, harder. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, well, so, it's one of the things I noticed, in, which was quite, again, quite inspiring in the English system, this sort of reflection of the Britain's or England's colonial past. Right. Mm-hmm. Whereas sort of minorities, the Irish, the Scottish, the Jamaicans, the Africans, yeah. the Asians, had a common bondage Absolutely. there, a common humanity, a yeah. common yeah. struggle because of the colonial heritage. Whereas the English, and I don't, again, I don't want to sound racist against <laughs> English, but the English had this very arrogant attitude. Right. Which, again, was, was a legacy of colonialism, which affected the English working class as much as it did the English ruling class. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, and, and, and it's the reason for such deep-rooted racism within the white English working class, mm. this colonial heritage. Mm. But, and we see that everywhere. It's not just the, oh, yeah, the justice system. I think no, there's a, absolutely. we've reached this point where it's like, it almost feels like the, the 
certain sort and I guess a lot of them are in Westminster. They're mm. sort of like they're cornered because the empire doesn't exist anymore. The the em, that sort of the imperial attitudes might exist mm. in some people, but it's such a big jump to for the for those people who've built not just their lives but their family histories on pride with that to say I acknowledge the harm, I acknowledge the past. That is so that's so far away that it's really frightening. They can't do that. So if you start to unravel it, everyone's going to fall to bits. So they can't let it unravel, which is why that arrogance like perpetuates because you've got to do it. You've got to fight back. Cause, and nationalism. You know, yeah, you know, exactly. Yeah. It's still very powerful. And, it, it, you know, the, the frightening thing is this sort of populist nationalism where, you know, you have groups like UKIP and all the rest of it feeding in to this almost instinctive racism on the part of the English white working class, yeah. which is, is a heritage or a legacy of colonialism. They feed into that, mm. that racism. And unfortunately, it's a vote winner, Brexit, for example, of course, which yeah. is based on racism, let's be honest about it. And yeah. fear. Fear of, yeah. of immigration, migrants. And it's a legacy of colonialism, you know, the outsider, the enemy. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, it's not just England, you look around the rest of Europe, there's this rise now of populist nationalism, yeah. which let's let's be honest about it is is fascism. Yeah. It really is, and you know it's it's, it's almost like history is repeating itself. Because if you look at what happened in in Germany and Italy, oh absolutely, Spain, there's a big the shift 30s, to the right. It's happening again. Yeah, it really is. You know, and it it's fed by this fear and insecurity about mass unemployment. Mm-hmm. Etc. And then this, this who deliberate. Who do we blame? Yes. Who do we who blame? Do we blame? We scapegoat yeah. groups such as immigrants, migrants, criminals. Yeah. Um, it's starting again. Yeah. Which is so important why groups like Black Lives Matter. Yeah. And you know, me and Matt was on a demonstration the other week, pro solidarity with the Palestinian people, yeah. and it was yeah. so inspiring. Yeah. To see young people breaking that mindset mm-hmm. and coming together in common struggle. I must so say, yeah, I think we're at quite polar polarizing time. Oh but yes, very there much. There is, you know, as much as we're seeing, you know, horrific stuff on the right, there does seem mm. to be a renewed sense of activism, mm. which is something we were talking mm. about as well. Yeah, um, mm. people are coming out and showing mm. up in a way Brilliant. that I've not seen for a, a while. Definitely, it's like a prison abolitionist argument. Right, ten, fifteen years ago, it was just dismissed as utopian. Idiocy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, people are talking about it. Well, like, since Black Lives Matter movement, yeah. defunding of the police, yeah. etc. The prison abolitionist movement is moving to the yeah. centre ground I was even going to mention that, mm. the Netflix documentary about mm. the 13th Amendment, mm-hmm. is it, you know, like, it's stuff like that. Like, mm. You'd never imagine mm. Netflix to have a, mm. essentially an abolition mm. narrative, Absolutely. you know, Absolutely. that anyone can access mm. and like friends of mine mm. were going to watch it and it's like, mm. you know, like, uh, that's, mm. that is it coming into the mainstream mm. and being mm. able to have the conversation, which well, is... You know, look at the argument of Black Lives Matter. I mean, young black men, for example, represent, what, 10% of the English population? Mm. Mm-hmm. They represent sixty to seventy percent of the prison population. Yeah, well, yeah. and and the life expectancy for a black trans woman in the exactly. states is thirty five. Yeah. You know, exactly. So you've got an institutionalized yeah. racist criminal justice system. Yeah. Particularly with police targeting of, of ethnic minority communities. Absolutely. Yeah. Arbitrary stop and search. Yeah. Feeding yeah. young black people into the criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. It's an intrinsically structurally racist system. Yeah. The criminal justice system in this country. 
And you know, you know, you look at the, the degree of ethnic minority prisoners, disproportionately overrepresented. Absolutely, because it was a yeah. way to legalize enslavement. Absolutely, and it, and it Jim Crow. Continue, yeah, the prison system was used as another form of enslavement in America. Yeah, and and it still is. Yeah, of it course. Still yeah. Is. And if you look, for example, the prison industrial complex. Yes. Yeah, that, that's what this was all about. You know, yeah. you know, prisons have become places of forced cheap labour. They're really privatised. Yes. Privatised. Yeah. And, you know, if you don't go to work, you're, you're stripped of all privileges and sometimes placed in solitary confinement. It is forced labour. Yeah. But like in America, Article 13, slavery can still exist providing it's used against prisoners. Mm. Yeah. So slavery was totally abolished in America. Absolutely. And it's the same in England. Yeah. If you're a prisoner and you're devoid of all civil and human rights, you can be enslaved. Yeah. I was going to say that. What What is the system like now in terms of like what we're talking about over here? Mm. Are we facing the same mm. problems in mm. terms of the, the labour oh, yeah. and all that? And oh, yeah. absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, when I first came to the prison system, uh, there was no privatised prison workshops, for example, or privatised prisons. Education was quite a, an important part of the prison system. It was probably the only area where true rehabilitation was achieved through mm. the prison educational system. And in some jails, the educational department was absolutely wonderful. Mm. It was almost on a par with university education. Today, the prison education departments have been stripped almost yeah. naked and handed over to private companies. And prisoners are only taught the three R's basically yeah, sure. or what they need to learn in order to get a job yeah. all the private all these workshops have been privatised so these private companies which by the way are sacking workers in mass in the community are reinvesting in the prison system yeah. they become factories closed yeah. factories yeah. Um, and you know you've got private prisons now so this you know and the epicentre of it is America but it's spreading throughout the whole of Europe particularly England yeah. so you know there's almost Mm, a, a motive in terms of expanding the prison population now. Well, of course, it yeah, there's a financial incentive. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you've got these private companies, I mean, this came, came to light in America, where private uh, security companies were paying judges through yeah. the back door yeah, yeah. to imprison more people. The same is happening here. Mm -hmm. The same is happening here. You know, you've got the ever-expanding prison population and these prisons are largely run now by private corporations, mm. Mm. and it, it's it's absolutely disgusting. So it I mean, really what is. I mean, this is where I guess we mm. look at prisoner solidarity mm. network and organising. What kind of work mm. are we seeing? Like, oh, what what man. kind of stuff are we? I I, I just want to hear well, from right. John. <laughs> <laughs> what we're trying to do at the moment, and and we're quite unique in this. The last time this was happening in probably the early seventies with the organisation Prop Preservation of the Rights of Prisoners, we're building up a network of support within the prison system itself. Mm -hmm. So we're expanding our, our links of communication with many prisoners. Mm -hmm. It's quite difficult at the moment because of the lockdown, yeah. which the Prison Officers Association wants to extend regardless of the pandemic. Sure. They're saying, oh, we've suddenly got control of the Yeah, prisons. this is quite good. Let's Absolutely. keep Absolutely. So they want it locked down. They've actually called the virus a blessing in disguise. Oh, that was head of the PRA, by wow. the way. But so it, it's quite difficult to organise at the moment because prisons are in a state of virtual lockdown or total lockdown, actually. But what we're actually trying to do is extend our network within the prison system so that we can hopefully organise solidarity and stuff like strikes eventually and withdrawal of prison labour, etc. Mm. And quite uniquely, the Prison uh, Solidarity Network is, is now extending that network 
The problem is that once the prison system becomes fully aware of that, yeah, they're going to stop our links to groups or right. to prisoners inside by using the censorship system by claiming that we're trying to spread the seeds of subversion in the mm. prison system. But uniquely, well, the last time the last president for this was prop during the early 1970s, preservation of the rights of prisoners. And the reason that the prison system was able to break prop was they isolated its organisers within the system, put them into control units like Wakefield, uh-huh. and broke the lines of communication between the organisation outside and the network of prisoners inside. But at the moment, the unique thing about prisoners' vice service, prisoners' vice network, is that we're building this network of support within the prison system, right. and it's within the prison system that the true struggle must take place. Yeah, I mean, you know, we can do all sorts of stuff in terms of support and highlight and abuse, but it's got to be at the point of production, uh-huh. the coalface. The, the real struggle has got to and take also place. the people that are most directly affected. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. I think it's important to mention, firstly, you know, the Prisoner Solidarity Networks, we're not a charity. Mm-hmm. We're a network no. of mutual support. And this Absolutely. also isn't about outside members saving yeah, people sure. inside. No. You know, we're, we're being led by yeah. people on, in, on the inside yeah. and advocating on their behalf because we have more freedom than they do mm. and, yeah. and, and mm. using that freedom mm. to advocate on their behalf but mm. yeah this is very much about you mm. know the, uh, the people we write to inside mm. organising you know a guy I write to Kevin Thackra mm. does incredible um, yeah. organising and mm. yeah and, and we just try and amplify their voices mm. and support mm. where, where we can so you so you mentioned they're writing to prisoners so if someone so if someone's listened to this and this is the first time they've sort of thought about this at length but now feels like they want to understand kind of what sort of activities they can do to sort of help the help the struggle. What 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 can they do? What are the sort of levels of involvement with something like prisoner solidarity? Well, what we're currently involved in, uh, we're, we're involved in a number of campaigns at the moment. The group, for example, ending solitary confinement, which is psychological torture. Mm-hmm. Um, the situation of Kevin Frackner, yeah. who's in an awful situation. So. Our main priority is building these networks of support with prisoners on the inside mm-hmm. and through prisoners on the inside, learning about the various situations and issues that need highlighting. And then our responsibilities as an outside group is to highlight these issues on the outside and, and offer some degree of solidarity mm-hmm. in terms of protest demonstrations, letter writing campaigns, etc. etc. Mm-hmm. But the the momentum must come from the inside. Sure. It really must. And prisoners like Kevin are really initiating that initiative. And they're suffering incredibly as a result. Kevin's situation is, 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 is awful. Yeah, one of the films that you made is about Kevin. Mm. That's right, yeah. And, you know, the Prison Officers Association are responsible for Kevin's situation. But prison hired psychologists and psychiatrists are legitimising his treatment. So um, Ke- Kevin's a sort of victim of mm, joint enterprise, isn't he? Yeah, what, that's right. What's, what's joint enterprise? So <coughs> joint enterprise is a... It's not actually a law, it's a doctrine um, which can be applied to a law. So you can be convicted of, it could be a violent crime, it could be um, it could be as, as something as little as theft. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, can, you don't have to actually commit the crime, you don't have to even be at the scene, which Kevin Thackra wasn't. <clears throat> uh, but if they can make a link via gang affiliation that perhaps mm. the the thing, the crime was premeditated. So say, for example, we just have this little hang. Um, it's all very nice. And then I'm on my way home, I get into a bit of an altercation and 
cause someone some serious harm <clears throat> and I go down for whatever it is, um, they might be like, all right, well, what, what was he doing earlier that day? Yeah. Oh, oh, he was he was with his mates, uh, Kim, mm. Luca and John. <laughs> oh, maybe that was a gang meeting and yeah. maybe that this, this was a premeditated mm. attack and maybe they're all in on it. Yeah. And you get, you three, the mm. same sentence as I get. Mm. So Kevin Thackra uh, went down under joint enterprise <clears throat> for, I, th- I believe it was a, a triple murder and he wasn't at the scene of the crime. And the, that's not me being conspiratorial. The authorities recognise he mm. wasn't at the scene right. of the crime, mm. you know. Um, <clears throat> but they've mm. they've they they mm. suggest that he's guilty under the joint enterprise doctrine mm. and was given thirty five years mm. minimum life sentence. Mm. And whilst he was inside, you know, you talked about once you're inside prison, things escalating. Um, he was attacked by screws, racially motivated attack. Um, and in the process of resisting that attack, he he cut one of the guards, mm-hmm. and and the prison officers uh, charged him with attempted murder. And incredibly, he represented himself at court and was, uh, you know, exonerated. Acquitted, he was the yeah. his, uh, the the jury found that he was innocent. It was well within the realms of self defence, mm-hmm. and um, and so he he didn't get that added to his sentence but when he came back to the prison mm. the prison officers are like we're not happy about this yeah <laughs> and so they stick him in solitary confinement where he's been for the last 11 years mm. it's 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 just a really mm. really mm. awful awful mm. um situation but mm. there's an unbelievable amount of people on uh, in in prison on joint enterprise mm. uh, convictions mm. unbelievable mm. i mean these people should be released tomorrow. Yeah, it's, it's, it's completely also important to point out that the joint enterprise law, the same as IPP, it was disproportionately applied to ethnic minority communities, yeah. particularly young black men. And it was initially the justification was well, there's a gang culture, and we need to attack this gang culture through joint enterprise. Yeah, absolutely. Or IPP. Absolutely. It was like in America, the war on drugs. Yeah, was of course. Disproportionately yeah, focused yeah. on crack yeah. users, totally. whereas cocaine users. Yeah, they were oh, right. yeah, it's yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> and the disproportionate amount of young, particularly black men, convicted on IPP and joint enterprise. Is, is incredible and Kevin is an absolute example of that yeah, yeah he's, he's done um, he's, he's of mixed heritage but yeah mm. um, but yeah absolutely right I mean anytime mm. you hear the word gang mm. you know it's a, <clears throat> a term that's weaponised mm. a concept that's weaponised automatic subject must be young black men exactly. yeah of course yeah because yeah. if a wee lady a wee old lady goes and steals a loaf of bread they're not going to joint enterprise the WI are they <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well I mean it's like I, I used to have quite a lot of um you know, arguments with, with with white prisoners, and they would, you know, we talk about gang culture and all oh, it's bloody blacks. I said, well, hang on, what about Glasgow? Yeah. yeah. You know, it's a worse gang culture than England ever had yeah. that extends back to the 1920s, the Razor Gangs. Yeah. So there was a very strong gang culture in Glasgow. Um, none of them were black. No. You know, and it's the same as in England. There are white, violent gangs, but the police disproportionately focus on the ethnic minority yeah. communities and criminalise young black men. Yeah. Mm. There's a there's a there's a scene in a film where some there's it's a film called The Fisher King and Tom Waits plays a homeless man and he's begging Grand Central Station. Mm. Someone throws him some money and someone next to him said, God, that man didn't even look at you when he threw you the money. And Tom Waits says, Yeah, they're paying not to look. And in a way, I think that's the prison system that, like, the the reason that the society supports 
the criminal justice system and the prison system is we're paying not to have totally. to look at the problem, right? Absolutely. If you put them all away, can you just put them all away, oh, shut the doors, yeah. and we, we can just pretend they don't exist? And, and that's what the prison system is used for, isn't it? To control social problems. Yeah. That's what Angela Davis said. She said prisons absolutely. don't disappear problems, they disappear people. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's what the prison system is used for. To, you know, as I say, a disproportionate amount of, of prisoners grew up in the children's homes and criminal justice system and from communities of, of absolute poverty. These prisoners are concealed and hidden mm-hmm. yeah. within closed institutions. And that's what the prison system is essentially used for. Is yeah. How much support is there, sort of the people that are currently in politics, how much support for prison abolition exists in mainstream? Virtually people? none. Is there, is there the, any The problem with the left in Britain is, particularly in terms of, of prisons, they have a very right-wing reactionary attitude. Oh, of course, about yeah. prisoners, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I was in prison, I mean, I'm a Marxist-Leninist. That's where I, my, mm-hmm. my political inclinations are. However, in the prison system, in terms of outside support, it was always the anarchist groups that, that gave us support. The communists didn't. We were the lumpen proletariat mm-hmm. that would probably have to be imprisoned under socialism because we were a danger to the working class. Mm-hmm. But a very right-wing reactionary attitude the Marxists left about prisoners. And it was the anarchist groups that really disproportionately supported us. <coughs> so something we'd have to... <coughs> thinking about our current government, well, even our current government and its opposition, Some a lot will, is going to have to change before oh God. this gets mm. kind of is there is there any kind of <coughs> even at sort of council level are you is there any involvement with the network and and kind of politics? I think what we've got to recognize is that abolition has got to be tied into and part of a much wider deep structural change in society yeah, yeah. Of course, yeah. you're not going to abolish prisons under the current class divided capitalist society no. and that's why the prison abolition movement must be tied into the wider revolutionary movement we need to change society fundamentally yeah. before we can talk about abolishing prisons mm-hmm. in terms of reform prison reform has achieved absolutely nothing Yeah. however I think there are some reforms that you can sort of look on them as, as part of a process of okay. transitional change, um, you know, such as the reform of, of the prison industrial system, you know, recognising prisoners' rights in that regard. So there are some reforms that are useful in terms of transitional change, but you're not going to reform the prison system. It's intrinsically and structurally repressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what has prison reform achieved over the past hundred years? Nothing. It's apart from legitimizing prisons. I, I think this is. We've got you got to make that distinction between reformist reforms and abolitionist reforms. Absolutely. Yeah. Sure. <clears throat> and and so a, a reformist reform like building more prisons and making mm. them more comfortable. Mm. The, the the way you distinguish between what's an abolitionist reform and a reformist reform very simple. Does it involve less people being in prison? Yeah. And making cells more comfortable, mm. ha- having more staff on the mm. wings, mm. Uh, having nicer dinners, that's that's not... Legitimising It's legitimising Yeah, of course. Yeah. It's actually making it worse. Mm. So, um, yeah, but whereas anything that, in, you know, a non-reformist reform would be, mm. uh, I don't know, decriminalising drugs, decriminalising sure. sex exactly. work, you know, like eradicating Absolutely. homelessness, eradicating poverty yeah. in this yeah. country, you know. Stopping the prison offences for non-violent offences. That's yeah. right, exactly. And, and all these things mm. are actually 
so doable. I mean, mm. at the start of this pandemic, let's mm. not forget, mm. it was actually the conservative government ended homelessness. Absolutely. They clicked their fingers mm. yeah. as soon as they Absolutely. thought that homelessness posed a threat to Absolutely. wider society because yeah. of harboring yeah. the virus. Uh-huh. It was done, and it didn't even cost that much. No. Mm. And and another thing we haven't mm. talked about, which other abolitionists, because you mm. know we often don't talk about these things, but. The cost of incarceration mm. is unbelievable. Mm. Yeah. You know, it costs mm. forty three thousand pounds a year mm. to incarcerate mm. just your standard inmate. Mm. Now, I actually looked this up uh, before coming here. How much does it costs to send someone to Eton? Forty two thousand pounds. So for the cost of incarcerating <laughs> someone in prison, I was very privileged. I went to Parker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, should, we could be sending him to Eton. Yeah. Well, it's, it's quite interesting you say that. I mean, if you look at Scotland again, I mean, I'm no great lover of the Scottish National Party, but look how they dealt with the gang issue in Glasgow, for example. They're moving away from looking at it as a criminal justice issue uh-huh. to a public health a issue. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that was a that was a big, big shift, progressive absolutely. shift to, absolutely. to just reframe that. Absolutely. But um, that all yeah. comes from really grassroots networks and communities like, mm. and f- people finding solidarity. Mm. Absolutely. And I think that's something that we're still struggling with down mm. here is people mm. within communities not finding solidarity. There's, there's mm. not networks. People I, feel very absolutely. alone. And very self-serving, mm. and, and actually, there's you know, and well, feel like they don't mm. have enough, and they need to protect what they have. Yeah, mm. absolutely. And this idea that like mm. if they open the door, even a jar, mm. someone's going to take what they've got. Yeah, mm. and it, fear. And it, it, it is fear. fear. Yeah, and it and it's mm. it's so pervasive, and mm. it keeps everything very manageable. Mm. Um, but like, I really, I really defy anyone to attend one of those protests and not. Don't feel really inspired by how positive mm. they feel and mm. how yeah. part of something mm. much bigger than yourselves that mm. you feel. But a lot of people would just see it as such a leap beyond their mm. life experience mm. to make the decision to do that. Mm. And so that's when there's that us and them, you, you mm. can't mobilize people like Crim- that. I mean, prisons and the criminal justice system has always been an incredible vote winner. Which yeah. is why the Labour Party, to a degree, has been even more right-wing when it comes to the treatment of prisoners yeah. and criminalisation of the Tories. I mean, they really have. Yeah. And, and it's yeah. the same yeah. in America with the Democrats. Oh, so actually, incarceration yeah. and tough-on-crime rhetoric goes up under mm. left-looking, mm. glancing mm. Uh, yeah. social mm. democratic parties. Mm. You see what it was like under Clinton. It was mm. Exactly, mm. exactly right. It's almost mm. like they have to offset... If they want to put any the woolly things, yeah. they have to yeah. offset it with, but we're going to lock them yeah, up yeah, and throw away the yeah. And it's feeding into that fear yeah. of the scapegoat, the, yeah. the, you know, the moral panics and folk devils. Well, we saw we were talking about the elections recently, and, and I had said that when I was looking at the sort of campaign promises of the mayoral candidates, mm. the majority of them were posing, like, massive increases in police oh, yeah. officers, right? Yeah. It is such a vote winner, because it's like, who... When you look at these things, it's mm. like... Who can argue that that's a good thing? I will feel safer. The mm. bad days will be mm. easier to catch. So there'll be more mm. people. Mm. Some people get jobs. Mm. Well done, everyone. Mm. Just everyone. And actually, you're right. The left is worse. They've, they've got oh, bigger God, figures. They've, they've, everyone. There's going to be one to one police officer to a civilian. Yeah. 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 And then we'll all feel we'll safe. We'll get our personal like, police officer. Yeah, exactly. Despite the fact that we have no jobs and we're homeless, yeah, they're dark. still locking yeah, up yeah, the criminals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's fine. And of course, the real criminals continue to run the whole system. Absolutely. You know. And you look at the how the most of the Western world reacted to the financial crash. And I mean, that criminal doesn't even begin to 
to to touch the the behaviour of those those small group of people that just completely threw the world's economy into disarray. Well, I mean, let's look at you know again historically the British colonialist mm. system. Yeah, they carried out genocide. Yeah, carried out mass murder. You know, the German Nazis were really inspired by English colonialism, um, and got their philosophy of eugenics from it. Mm. Where, you know, you could justify this genocide because these people weren't really human. They were savages that had to be civilised. So, you know, you look at the history of this country in terms of colonialism and the awful crimes that were committed against people in the colonies. Genocide, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Um, how many of them ended up in prison for the protection of the public? Well, and also the, the statues of them. Yeah, they, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the narrative was those lucky people—they've been saved by us, and uh, we, we, you know, I mean, that's and it's, and that is the sort of pervasive narrative, isn't it? Overall, mm. like, thank goodness we were all there and we just sorted <laughs> it out. But it, it, and it touches on what you said before about the network not being about people on the outside saving mm. people mm. on the inside because mm. that then just perpetuates the saviour mm. conflict. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and the reformist mentality as well. We're not there to carry out a humanitarian function. It's not possible within the prison system. Yeah. Our efforts and our energy is directed towards undermining and weakening the prison system sure. by building a network of solidarity within the prison so that hopefully the balance of power can be shifted in the prisoner's favour, which will lead to a lessening of the repressive apparatus of the prison system. That can only be achieved by prisoners becoming collectively empowered. Mm-hmm. And that's how you know the group sees its function to assist in that development of prisoner empowerment. Mm-hmm. That is the only thing that's going to meaningfully and radically change the prison system, not piecemeal reformism which all that does is legitimise the prison system and make people feel like they don't have to worry about it anymore oh that's like right these absolutely being, and as done. I say what has prison reform achieved nothing apart from legitimising I mean in a lot of the time it actually contributes to the expansion of the criminal oh, yeah, justice absolutely. system so I mean yeah, it's really interesting it was yeah. was it in the 90s when they introduced tag and electronic yeah, tags yeah. and initially that was supposed mm. to be an answer to the an booming prison population mm. as an alternative or oh, mm. we, we won't lock them up we'll just give them these tags <laughs> we'll them. but what it actually ended mm. up being they kept, kept giving out the usual sentences mm. but then also with these mm. added mm. bits where when you're upon mm. release mm. you've now got to have this tag and yeah. the probation Absolutely. service is, is another example and, and, and that's an extension of the prison system into the community Absolutely. it's spread out the carceral system yeah. so you have people on you know parole like I'm on for the rest yeah, of my maybe life we should, can we talk Tagging. about that parole um, yeah. Like so, you so you got out last year, got mm. out from prison. Yeah. And so, what what connection do you still have? What does being on parole mean for those who just don't don't know what that actually entails? Well, when you receive a life sentence, um, even if you are released, you remain on parole for the rest of your life. Okay. And I can be recalled to prison not because I break the law, because I technically breach my license conditions or fall out with my probation officer. Mm-hmm. You know, there are people recalled to prison. I mean, I had a friend who was recalled to prison because he was in a parole hostel and they smelled alcohol on his breath. He was recalled to prison. There was one guy who was recalled to prison because he didn't tell his probation officer that he got married. And if you're recalled to prison as a lifer, for whatever small technical reason, you could be there till you die. If I'm recalled to prison, I'd probably die in prison. So I could be recalled for any technical breaches of licence. I just left a parole hostel where I spent over a year. I was subject to curfew conditions, etc. Uh-huh. 
If I was a minute late returning to the hospital, I could be recalled to prison. Right. Um, and I'm subject to that for the rest of my life until I die. And so how often are you are you sort of monitored or someone checks in on you? Or? Well, I, I'm, I've now moved into my own accommodation, so I have a degree more independence and autonomy, but I've got to report to my probation officer once a week. Okay. Initial condition of my parole was that I would must not interact or mix with political activists. Christ. Not attend demonstrations. Bloody hell. And not interact with ex-prisoners. Right. And yet, ironically, I mean, when I when I left that parole hostel, although I'd been the year of probation, had not fulfilled their duty to find me accommodation. Mm-hmm. So I was effectively homeless. Yeah. And I could have been recalled to prison, but instead of which, they dumped me in a hostel for refugees. Right. And it was an awful place. I mean, the, okay. the rooms were, were, were smaller than prison cells, but whole families crammed into them. Yeah. And I, I, I couldn't cope. I thought, you know what, I don't care if I go back to prison. Right. And yeah, it was ex-prison friends and people like Matt who gave me incredible support. Mm-hmm. And they were the ones that kept me from going back to prison. Um. So again, humanity and solidarity over absolutely, the system, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And that's why you have such a high degree of recall of, of prisoners. I mean, there are literally hundreds, if not thousands, of prisoners who haven't actually broken the law. They're back in prison for technical breach of mm. licence because the, the whole nature of the probation service has changed. 30-odd years ago, it was a fairly humanitarian, mm. Christian-driven organisation yeah. And, you know, most probation officers were sort of hippie-ish left-wing type. Yeah. And, you know, they saw their function as reintegrating prisoners back into the community. What's happened over the past 10 or 15 years is this Americanization of the probation service. Mm. And it's now become about the main priority is public protection. Yeah. Um, so it isn't about reintegrating prisoners back into society. It's about policing them after their release and recalling them for the most, you know, minor infringement of, of technical rules or, or regulations. And you, as I say, you've literally hundreds, if not thousands of prisoners, particularly life sentence prisoners, who are back in prison, not because they broke the law, yeah. because they fell out with their supervision officer. Uh-huh. I remember when I was actually in Scotland and I was allocated this probation officer and he came in to see me and uh, he said, right, I'm your supervision officer, or as I like to think of myself, public protection officer. Well, that's handy that that's how you like to think of yourself. But public protection is one of those really mm. wafty phrases that mm. can be used to mean anything. Mm. It's like the Patriot Act, right? It's like it, it basically can mean anything and you mm. can bend it to your will, mm. whatever you need that mm. to mean. Mm. And it's always really worrying when you have those kind of blanket terms. Mm. It, me- it means mm. for you, you can never relax. Because no, absolutely. It's, and, and that's really handy for, for them if you Oh, absolutely. Sure. I mean, they have sort of relaxed the conditions of my licence. Mm-hmm. As I say, I'm now on my own accommodation, so I, I, I'm not subject to curfew conditions. They've now relaxed my uh, conditions in terms of mixing with, with pre- sure. pre- you know, uh, political activists. I went on a demonstration with Matt the other week, a pro-Palestinian. They knew about that, but okay. they were okay about that. So they are now starting to... But I suspect the reason for that is because they, they, they see that I have a degree of solidarity from mm. people like that. They're yes. a bit worried oh, absolutely, that I yeah. would highlight yeah. the abuses of their authority in it's a wider the, sense. It's the people that are on their own that they're going to target, not the people that absolutely, have a network behind absolutely, them. Absolutely, absolutely. What was the, 
what was the sort of psychological impact of of when you left prison? Did, oh, how yeah, how it did it feel difficult. to to leave after so well, long? Well, you know, I spent you know forty years in a prison environment, which to me was like life in the trenches. I saw myself mm. as a soldier almost. You know, we united against a common enemy, and my whole life was dedicated and committed to fighting the class war within the prison system. I came out during the height of the lockdown, and it was it was quite difficult. I mean, I came out into almost a vacuum. Yeah. Do you know there wasn't this frontline struggle against a common identifiable enemy, and I found it. Inc- and plus, although I hated to admit it, I was institutionalized. And I found it incredibly hard and difficult. And as I say, had it not been for people like Matt, I would have found it incredibly harder. Yeah. Because I'd lost that sense of cause. Yeah. I'd lost that sense of commitment. The whole purpose of my life, which had been that struggle, was gone. Was gone. And yeah, I floundered around in, in a vacuum for quite a while. It took me a long time to make that transition to a non-prison society. Doing it, having it happen in lockdown just must have made it like a yeah. hundred times harder. I mean, that's mm. the weirdest time for... And the degree of social conformity. Yeah. You know, I came out and, you know, because of the lockdown and that, and just looking at the degree of social conformity, I thought, oh, my God, what's happened? Yeah. And that's why I was so inspired as the Black Lives Matter movement developed. I thought, my God, there is a struggle. Yeah. There is conflict. We're not talking about a totally conformist society or world that I thought I'd re-entered. There is a struggle going on, mm. you know, and, and hopefully it's gaining momentum. Yeah. And that has given, I mean, went on the demonstration. One of the things I found, because there, there are a lot of psychological damage caused when you spend a long time in prison, and one of the th- hardest things I found when I come out was interaction, interacting with groups of people. Mm. You know, I used to get panic attacks, to be honest. And then we went on the demonstration, there was 100,000 people there. And initially, I didn't say to you, I thought, God almighty, I'm getting panic attacks here. Yeah, I bet. But then I realised we were all there on the common cause. And I felt incredibly empowered. Mm. And it really restored my faith in the struggle. It really did. Mm. <laughs> That's beautiful. It yeah. was beautiful. I remember we were getting yeah. on the tube at Bank. Yeah. And it was rammed. <laughs> and it was absolutely rammed. Yeah. And, and, and you know, I, I could I could tell you a bit tense, John. And then all of a <laughs> yeah. sudden we just like, I wanted to get off the train, do you remember? Yeah, yeah, I remember, yeah. <laughs> but then we, we looked and it's like, oh, someone's got a Palestinian flag. I'm like, look, they've got a Palestinian oh, yeah, flag yeah, on the course. And then the protest yeah. started on that tube. Oh, I'm telling you, man, the chants were kicking off immediately. Oh. It was absolutely. Uh, and I felt so inspired and strengthened and you empowered. Found home in that. Absolutely, you know, and something it, that felt so alien, but actually, uh, yeah. yeah. And, and and it was the only time since I'd left prison that I felt like that. Mm. That here I was with a group of people united by a common cause, mm-hmm. and it was so. It was very rehabilitation. I mean, it really helped me, you know, come to terms with life outside, knowing that there was a struggle, you know, Palestinian struggle, anti-racist struggle. I'm feeling part of that, mm-hmm. and that really restored me. It really did. Well, and the outside world has gained an incredibly powerful figure in you, John. Thank God you're out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you well, right. there's a lot of struggles, as it turns out, that we yeah. have to sort out. So Absolutely. we'll be busy for a long time. Yeah, really. I just yeah. feel, yeah, I was going to echo that and just say I feel very, very lucky. Oh, thank to you. have had the chance to meet you. Definitely. Thank you. And I know it won't be the last time, but thank no. you so much for No, and yeah, thank, thank you. you. Absolutely, yeah. And it's wonderful to me too 
well, I was going to say fellow Scots, fellow Celts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Matt, like, it's super inspiring, mate. Oh, like, Matt is incredible. Being really that is. solidarity for yeah. people and and having, you know, that yeah. was our way, you were yeah. a connection to Matt, Matt when I left the prison, I, I was taken to the probation hostel, actually, by screws. Matt was there waiting for me. And he actually recruited one of the staff members from the hostel. Amazing. <laughs> yes. Always on the organ. <laughs> Never off never duty. <laughs> yeah. oh, that's a good note to end on. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. So we, because the that info pack on the website's got a really good reading list. Hmm. We're gonna we'll publish that. And we'll publish that. There's the links to the videos that, oh, that the network. Yeah, made. we'll share yeah. everything for sure. And we'll link up again. It'll be really. Oh, absolutely. Good. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much. Beautiful. No, thank you. It's been nice. wonderful. Let's go change the world. All right, let's do it. Okay, bye. <laughs> Ever onward, comrades. <laughs> <laughs>